Good morning. Hey, if you are a guest with us, my name is Rob. I'm one of the ministers that are on staff here at New Hope, and I would love to meet you and get to know you and meet your family. And uh, if you have any uh, questions, you want to learn more about our church, those connect cards that Ben mentioned uh, are really important. Our elders gather on Saturday mornings and on Monday evening once a month uh, to pray over the prayer requests that you write on those cards. So every week, if you put a prayer request on a connect card, it is going to be prayed for. And so I encourage you to fill out that card uh, during the service. And at the end of the service, we'll have a time of offering. When that tray's passed, you just drop the Connect card in there. And if you don't get a chance to do that, you go ahead and uh, drop it at the Welcome Center there in the lobby. Now, uh, one thing, one uh, housekeeping item before we jump into the sermon this morning. Um, you may have noticed or listened to a, a difference in uh, the auditorium this morning. There's been a lot of work going in this week to the new sound system. So uh, we, uh, because of your generosity, I want to thank you. As you give, uh, we're able to maintain and upgrade um, uh, the, the building and make sure that it's just up to standards and we can serve people and serve our community. And so uh, we put a new sound system in this past week. And by we, I mean Ben Faust. <laughs> and, uh, but really, I, I, the second thanks goes to him. Uh, he was burning the candle on both ends. And so he, he really served a lot. He put in a lot of hours this week. If you think about it, Last Sunday, after church, they tore the system out, and then this Sunday, it's in and ready to go. And so a lot of work went in for him and his team uh, this past week, making sure we were ready for this morning. Now, I will give you a disclaimer. In first service, my microphone failed uh, and just died because of the frequency. And so if that happens again, uh, we will have a microphone put up here, uh, and so you'll just bear with us, I'm sure. So let me pray for us, and we will jump in. Father, thank you. Once again, for the access we have to your word, we do not take it for granted this morning. We understand we have freedom to meet in a room like this, to be able to sing freely, uh, to be able to open your word and to hear from you. And so where we can't see, would you give us eyes? We, we can't hear, would you give us ears to hear from your word this morning? And we ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Your conduct uh, will always reveal your character. Your conduct will always reveal your character, the source of your character. Uh, one of the goals I have in my life uh, is to be a very intentional and good dad. It is something I pay attention to quite a bit uh, for a variety of reasons, but being a good dad is extremely important to me. And so uh, in our home, I've done some things intentionally uh, to be able to uh, take that value that I have and to live it out. And so uh, I made plans uh, early on with my children as they grew to do some very specific things, one of which was to take them on three trips each, one when they're 10, one when they're 13, and one when they are 18. And so uh, the, the trips are designed to get us away, um, myself and each of the kids, and on these trips, I'm able to communicate a truth that I really think they need to learn at that season of their life and to create memories around the teaching of that truth to embed it into their mind so that they will always take with them these truths. And so uh, the plan was when they turned 10 to do the first trip. And so the first person up was my oldest son, and he turned 10 last summer. And so we took our first trip. Now, the first trip is designed around teaching them the importance of character, uh, particularly to have godly character, but to, to really teach them why you need to have character. And so uh, I give them a couple choices on where we can go within uh, budget reason. Uh, he wanted to go to uh, California to watch the Golden State Warriors game. I said, I think you're missing the point of the trip, buddy. Uh, and so uh, out of the choices I gave him, he chose New York City. 
And so last summer, we took off on a four-day journey to New York City. Now, I've, I've got family uh, that's up there, a cousin who serves with the NYPD, and, and so I thought we can form this trip. It's going to be good. And we got to New York City, and it was a wonderful trip, a lot of fun. We formed a lot of memories. Uh, we ate really good pizza, and we went and saw some of the sites uh, that were to see around the city uh, based on some recommendations. And then uh, we people watched. My son had never really got to do that uh, so we watched like a businessman on his lunch break doing yoga out on a pier, and my son got giddy, like he could not stop laughing, and I thought, <laughs> this is a memory, this is good. But I knew that if we were going to that city and we were going to be talking about character, there was one place we had to go. And so I took him to the 9-11 Museum. And as we, uh, we walked through this place, uh, it was not hard to talk about the importance of character. As we looked at images and heard the stories of men and women who so selflessly gave of themselves for the, sacrifice, for, for the benefit of other people. They sacrificed their lives to save other lives. It became very easy to talk about the importance of having character. On display, while we were there, was a sports section. Uh, how 9-11 and, and what happened in the sports world. And on display in that section was the uniform of a soldier named Pat Tillman. And so as we got to that section... And I'm, I'm with my 10-year-old son, and we're looking at the uniform the soldier wore. Now, Pat Tillman went to Arizona State University. He was a football player. He was kind of a star athlete, ended up going to play for the Arizona Cardinals. And in 2001, he became convicted that he needed to do his part in serving our country. And his conduct revealed his character and his convictions. And he gave up a $3 million contract extension with the Arizona Cardinals to join the Army Rangers and went and, and fought for his country and ultimately gave his life. And we're looking at the uniform that he wore on display, and I knew in that moment that this lesson on character would be embedded deep in the heart and mind of my son for the rest of his life. And since that trip, I've seen over and over again evidence that he got it, that his character was extremely important, that conduct reveals character. And so this is the message that the Apostle Paul had for the church of Philippi. As we bring our attention to the end of chapter 1, Paul is trying to tell them very clearly that your conduct, the way you live, the decisions that you make, will always reveal the source of the focus of your character and your character development. Your conduct will always reveal your character. Now, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Philippians chapter 1. I want to encourage you to open it there. And we're going to see, as Paul just got done giving this church an update on his life situation, he just got done explaining to this church what was most important in his life. And you remember the famous verse where he says, for me, in my life, to live is Christ and to die is gain. As, G as David walked us through this teaching last week, we came to understand for Paul, he says, hey, if I'm going to live my life, if my life is going to be lived, it's going to be for Jesus, meaning the, the source of my character, the formation of my character will be from Jesus, and then everything I do will be for Jesus. So if I'm going to live, it's going to be to offer my life to other people to make Jesus famous. And if I'm going to die, well, that's great too, because then I get to go be with Jesus. So whether I live or whether I die, every day, every decision, every thought, everything is going to be focused on Jesus. And for his friends in the city of Philippi, they knew this truth about the Apostle Paul, that his conduct revealed his character. His conduct, the decisions he made, showed whether or not he truly believed this, whether or not this was actually embedded deep into his heart and into his mind and had formed his character. If you remember in Acts chapter 16, when Paul planted this church, 
Paul uh, goes and plants a church, and his, he and his friend Silas are walking through the streets of Philippi, and they heal a demon-possessed girl who was inflicted by a demon. And as a thank you to Paul and Silas, the government beat them within an inch of their life and throw them into prison. And the Apostle Paul, suffering in front of these Christians, had a decision to make. The moment he was brought before the government, he had a decision to make. Will I choose my comfort, or will I choose my convictions? Will I choose a cross, or will I choose a recliner? Will I choose citizenship in heaven, or citizenship in Rome? Because Paul was a Roman citizen. And in that moment, all he had to do was to tell these Roman officials, that he had citizenship and they would not have laid a finger on him, but he knew in that moment he had to display for these young Christians that loyalty to Jesus comes before loyalty to Caesar, that citizenship in heaven is far more important than citizenship to Rome. And so in a moment, he chose conviction and character over comfort, and his conduct revealed his character. So now when Paul turns around and writes the words we're about to study this morning, they carry a weight. There's a weight to these words. These Christians know that for Paul, conduct revealed character, which means every word he's going to tell us, we can listen to. And we're going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says these words. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in any way by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. You see, Paul, right off the bat, the very first word of this last section in chapter one communicates a lot to us. It's more than likely translated in your Bible as the word only, but I think if you were to take the original language, the better translation would be, hey, just one thing. Hey, Philippians, just, just one thing I want to point out to you. This, this moment, this is a shift in his writing. He has been communicating to them an update on his life, and now at verse, chapter 1, verse 27, he takes a hard turn and says, now I need to talk to you about what you're supposed to do, the life you're supposed to live. So, so this one thing I want to tell you, this one important truth I want you to focus on, I want you to make sure you're not distracted and pay attention to this one thing I have to say to you, your conduct is extremely important. And so he says, conduct your lives, live your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news, that's what gospel means. So live your life in a way that is worthy of the good news of Jesus. Uh, the way Paul describes your life in, in, that, in that first verse in chapter 27, he's actually using political language. He's using military type language that he only uses here in the entire uh, New Testament. He only uses it to the Philippians because he knew citizenship was important to them. So you could translate it this way. Hey, one thing, Philippians, one thing, I want you to understand to live as citizens worthy of the kingdom you've been called to. Live as citizens, that's the language he uses, worthy. So, so your citizenship is vitally important, he's telling them. And for the Romans, they knew that. For, for the Philippians, they understood that citizenship was extremely important in their life. They knew that living in Philippi, they have Roman citizenship. So every decision we make, every custom we adopt, every truth we defend represents Rome. Everything we do, what they understood was this, that when somebody came to Philippi, if you were to vacation in Philippi, you were going to get a taste of Rome. And so Paul is telling them the same exact thing should be true, even more so with your heavenly citizenship. What he's saying is when people come to the church, when people come and they spend time among God's people, they should get a taste of heaven. 
that the values we display, the words that we use with one another, the way that we lift each other up, the decisions that we make as a church family should be a reflection of our citizenship in heaven. When people come and they spend time with God's people, they should get a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like. They should be able to spend time with us in the present and understand a little bit more about what the future holds. See, when somebody's done spending time with God's people, they should be one step closer to Jesus than they were before they got around them. And if the same thing is true in the church, it is equally true in your home. You see, Paul, when he wrote to the church at Corinth, called you an ambassador for Jesus, meaning the decisions you make, the values you uphold, the way that you love and care for people, the joy that you display in your life represents a kingdom that's much bigger than you. So when a friend comes over for dinner, when a family who's hurting comes and spends a weekend with you, they should leave your home with a little bit more understanding of who Jesus is. They should be slightly more refreshed than they were when they stepped foot in your home the first time. Your home is an outpost for the kingdom of God. It points people beyond. See, when people come over, our focus should not be impressing them with our stuff. Our focus should be when they leave, I want them to see Jesus with more clarity than they did when they got here. A few years ago, we had a family in the church that really modeled this. They, they did it well. Many of you do. This family made an impression on myself and my wife. Their names were Duncan and Serena Sheriff. They've since moved to Australia. Uh, they were dear friends, and we were a part of a discipleship group with them. And so uh, we would go to their home once a week, and we would spend some time, and we would eat, and we would hang out. And then we found ourselves going over uh, often, just spending time with Duncan and Serena. And the way that they conducted themselves in their home, this carefree, they weren't worried about their stuff. They, would, they, they knew the right thing to say. They, they, they were laser-focused on you. The moment you came in their home, you knew that you were the most important thing in that house. And I'll never forget leaving their house one day, sitting in the car, driving home, and my wife looking over and saying, man, every time we leave their house, I feel so refreshed. You see, this is what Paul is saying to the church of Philippi. When people come around, God's people, living together, they should be refreshed. They should be pointed to Jesus. Your home, your church family, every time someone comes in this building or our houses, they should get a glimpse of heaven. They should get a glimpse of what it means to walk closely with Jesus. That means we selflessly put outside our agendas. That means we constantly put other people in front of ourselves. That means we're always sacrificially serving and giving of ourselves consistently over and over and over again. And Paul's going to talk a lot about what it means to live a life of humility and service when we get to chapter 2 next week. But today, he's going to give us three things, three callings on our life, three ways that a life lived in, in heavenly citizenship manifests itself in the life of a church. He's going to give you three solid things. that If you're going to live this way, under the umbrella of unity in Jesus, here's what it's going to look like. The first thing he tells us there in chapter 1, verse 27, is stand firm. So the first thing that a church who's focused on the citizenship in heaven does is they stand firm in one spirit. The Greek word that's used here is steko, and it is a word that means to hold one's ground. It was a military term. He's talking about the role of a soldier. He is saying that when opposition comes your way, when you are in Christ, the church, but if you're thinking military-wise, when opposition comes towards an army, towards a band of brothers, their primary job is to stand firm and withstand the blow of the enemy. Not to retreat, not to be scared, not to ignore it, not to get off the road, but to stand firm in the middle of the road and receive the blow of the enemy. He says, when you're in the church, living for Jesus is not always easy. There is cultural pressure put on you to compromise your beliefs. 
There is all kinds of cultural pressure put on you to, to make certain decisions that don't honor God that you know nobody's going to know about. There are decisions put on you to put yourself above the interests of other people. There is all, and for the Philippians, it was no different. You, you have to imagine loyalty to Rome being superior to everything. And so for somebody to say, my loyalty is first to King Jesus, not to Caesar, would not have been popular. And the pressure put on these Christians, not only that, the persecution that was introduced to these Christians, as many of them were being turned into the authorities for pledging allegiance to Jesus over their country. This was anything but easy to follow Jesus in a culture that was against him. And he says, your primary job, together with one spirit, together, united in Christ, not separate, not running, but together, withstand that blow of persecution and hatred. Many of you may be familiar with the story of the, the famous battle that took place at uh, Thermopylae in 480 B.C. Alliance of Greek city-states led by King Leonidas of Sparta uh, were going up against the mighty Persian Empire. They were way outnumbered. They had way less resources. They were doomed to lose this battle. And as Persia began to make their way to destroy these Greek city-states, there was one small road that the Persian army would have to take to get to these people. And King Leonidas gathered his famous 300 soldiers, and he went to that road knowing this is the only way they're going to get here. And he united with the 300 soldiers. They united, put their feet in the dirt. They stood their ground. And against the mighty Persian empire, for three solid days, they held off this mighty empire coming to destroy them. This is the same language Paul's using. He's saying you have an enemy who sometimes feels like he's outnumbering you. Sometimes it feels like he's going to get the best of you. Sometimes following Jesus is unpopular. It's not comfortable. It's not preferable. Stand your ground. Stand firm. You will have an enemy. He is coming. He will attack. That's not pleasant or fun to talk about, particularly in American Christianity. But we have an enemy. Uh, here recently, we've been experiencing a wonderful season of ministry here at New Hope. We've had many people place membership. We've had many people get baptized. We've had uh, people joining groups. The church is growing. Our staff is wonderful. Uh, I think the feedback from the staff would be uh, united that we, we love coming to work during the week. We love working together. But one of the things that I've tried to impress upon our elders and our staff is this. When we're advancing the kingdom of God, there's somebody who doesn't like it. And he's coming. And we have to stand our ground. And you do that together. So the first thing is you stand your ground. The second thing he tells us is that you strive forward side by side with one mind. Again, stressing unity. Together we strive forward. So we don't just stand our ground. We go on the defense. We actually advance the mission. We're not called to stand still. Standing your ground is not the same as standing still. We stand our ground, we withstand the blows, and we move forward, and we advance the mission of God. This is the language that he uses here. He actually uses a Greek word that we get our English word athlete from. He's actually speaking of athletics, and what he has in mind, uh, multiple different things. It could be a, a team sport. In our language, we might think about football, right? Football season. And you think you, you don't defend and you don't, by, by just sitting there, you have to actually push forward and block, and you're going after a goal, and you advance it. In their day, it would have been the arena. And what comes to my mind is one of my favorite movies, but this is the language that Paul is using here. He says, you don't just stand your ground. You have to move forward, and you have to do it together. And one of my favorite movies is the movie Gladiator. And many of you may have seen it. If you haven't, you should. Uh, and so the movie Gladiator 
This, it tells the story of Maximus, this, this uh, military leader who is then betrayed. He's thrown into s- slavery, and then he's thrown into the gladiator arena to defend himself. Typically, what would take place is you would throw these, these slaves, these captives, these former soldiers into the arena, and they would try to defend themselves, ultimately losing. But when they throw Maximus into this, this arena, he does something different. He begins to gather a group of men, and he begins to coach them. And he says, we can't fight this alone. We have to do this together. And so you withstand the blow together, and we advance the fight together. And they begin to do that, much to the dismay of the government and all of the fans watching. They continue to win battle after battle. Because every time they're thrown in, they watch one or two soldiers think that they have it all that they need by themselves, and they run rogue. I'll do this on my own. I don't need anything. We see that spiritually speaking when people say, I, it's about me and Jesus. I don't need the church. I'll go to whatever church pleases me for a moment. I'm never going to really invest in church. I'm not going to make any sacrificial decisions to get involved in the life of the church. Jesus is enough for me. I can do this on my own. And the moment you do that, much like in the movie Gladiator, when they would run off and try to do it on their own, the enemies watched somebody separate from the pack and they went and devoured them. The Bible describes Satan the same way. He is waiting to devour you. And he watches when you separate yourself from the unity of the church, and he devours you. And Paul is saying, together, united, you advance the cause. The imagery here is clearly that of athletics, that together you move forward. Together you have a goal. Together you have a purpose to advance the cause. So the first thing is stand your ground as a church. The second thing, church, is to advance the mission, to move forward, to consistently take another step. The third thing he tells us is this, fear nothing from your opponents. Have no fear in you. Why? Because first and foremost, you know how this story ends. You understand that as you advance the mission, there will be casualties. There's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. It's going to be difficult, but you know how the story ends. So there's nothing this enemy can do to you that's eternal when you're in Christ. And so advance knowing that he's got your back. But he says, you fight alone, then you definitely have something to be fearful of. When you fight together... And see, Paul constantly talked about this. He said, I constantly have opponents who are going against the gospel. He talked about it in chapter 1 of Philippians when he wrote to the church at Corinth. He said, all these different things are going on, and I've got all these people that are opposing the good work of Jesus. But I'm not fearful. I'm not scared. Why? He says, because I know how this story ends. Because he's coming back. Because he always comes through. So I'm not going to be scared of any attack. But I'm also not going to withstand it. I'm not going to avoid it. I'm going to stand my ground. I'm going to advance the mission, and I'm going to do so fearlessly. Another movie, last movie reference, I promise. One of my other favorite movies is uh, a sports movie called Remember the Titans. Maybe you've seen it. A lot of quotes came out of that movie, got overplayed for quite a while, but a pretty incredible movie about a football team from from Virginia who has their first season as a a racially integrated team, and they, they now have to work together in a culture that is completely against them. And the movie starts out, and there's all kinds of division among the team. They're divided, they don't like each other, there's racism, and it's led by this coach, played by Denzel Washington, and he decides, before we can advance the mission, before we can stand our ground, we must be united. And so he takes the football team in a famous scene to Gettysburg, and he gives them one of the best speeches ever. And all of a sudden, the team begins to bond, and they begin to unite, they begin to see, we can't do this alone, we have to do this together. And they come back from that training camp, and all of a sudden they start winning their games, and they're winning, and they're doing well. But it is not for a lack of opposition because the culture around them, the school administration that was around them, and every other team they played against along with the crowd would yell out these slurs, yell out these things. But for some reason, the team no longer was intimidated because their unity gave them confidence. The same thing is true in the church. We will have opposition. We will have people that are not for the mission of God advancing. 
And it will be, at times, intimidating. And it is leaning into the unity of the church, the love that you have for one another, that will help us stand our ground, advance the gospel, and do so fearlessly. And if you want to know where you're at, just remember, your conduct, the decisions you make, the life you live, will always reveal your character. It always reveals your character. Paul says, when the church is doing this, when this, this comes together in this beautiful mix, something happens. And he describes that in verse 28. He says this. He says this, referencing the, the unity and the, the depth of character among the believers. It's a clear sign to the opponents that are coming for you of their destruction. This is not a politically correct thing to say, but what he is saying is this. The opponents of the gospel eventually lose, meaning some will go to hell. Those who oppose Jesus will be destroyed. It will not last. And the clear sign that you're no longer intimidated and you're united to your brothers and sisters and you're advancing the gospel is a clear sign of your salvation and that a gift from God, not anything that you earned. It's a reminder that God has your back. And then in verse 29, he says, For because of this, you know that it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but that you should also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now that I hear that I still have. So this is a clear sign of their destruction. And he says, and understand this, as we advance, we're going to suffer in this life. Again, not easy to preach in America. But if you remain loyal to Jesus, it will not be easy. It will be difficult. And he says two things. He gives us two indications about what suffering is. One, he calls it a gift. He says it has been granted to you to suffer. It's been a gift to you to suffer. How in the world do you see suffering as a gift? And he says, for two reasons. One, it shows the world that Jesus has your back. But the second thing that suffering does is it reminds you and draws you closer to him. You get drawn closer to Jesus in the midst of your suffering when you see it from the right perspective. Again, I told you this a couple weeks ago. I'm the worst at this. Give me a bad day and you're going to hear about it. But in the midst of our worst days, we're drawn closer to him. Have you ever noticed this? Have you ever walked with somebody who's a strong believer, who's united to the body of Christ, who is committed to the mission of Jesus, go through a tragedy or a difficulty? You ever walked with them through it? I've walked with many families in this church through those difficult times, and as I sit in their living rooms, it is painful and it hurts. As they reflect on it and process and move through it, one of the things that is a common thread through that maturity is this. I've never felt closer to the Lord than I did during that season. How in the world is that? I sat with a missionary recently at lunch who leads a team. And I asked this missionary, I said, hey, on behalf of our church, how can we be praying for you? And his prayer request was one thing, and it was simple, and I kid you not. He said, would you pray that we would be given permission to suffer? And I thought, no, I won't. <laughs> ah, how do you pray for that? He said, because if we'll just suffer for a little while, we'll grow closer together as a team and we'll advance the mission where we're called. Would you pray that we could suffer? He gets it. He, he sees something. This missionary understood the words of Paul in a way that maybe I haven't. He understood that Jesus is glorified in the midst of our suffering when we stand firm when we advance the mission, and when we live fearlessly because we know the end of the story. I close out with, with this. John Knox was a preacher in Scotland back uh, during uh, the, the time of Bloody Mary back in the 1500s. And uh, Bloody Mary, uh, she burned some 280 Christians at the stake. And so uh, Christians were being uh, killed and martyred 
in the droves, and many of his closest friends were killed. And he had this small sh- stature. He was a weak man, and, but he had this passion and this desire to live for Jesus, and so he did, and it ultimately cost him his life. And at his funeral, it's recorded uh, that, that many had said of him, in particular, one of his closest friends said, here lies a man who never feared the face of man. Here lies a man who never feared the face of man because he was so focused on the face of God. I don't know about you. I I can't speak for you, but I can tell you this. My prayer, my earnest prayer is that we would suffer well. That we as a church, that we as families that exist inside of this church and as individual followers of Jesus, when we go through trials and difficulty, we would not fear the face of man because we would have our gaze, our attention focused on the face of God. May it be said of us that we suffered well. And if you want to know whether or not you're ready for that, just remember, your conduct will always reveal your character. Let's pray.